Welcome back to series two of The Detective, and this, the second episode. What if it's not murder? I'm investigative reporter Mark Williams-Thomas, and have spent all my working life focused on trying to help victims get justice. This involves investigating both current and historic crimes, as well as looking at potential miscarriages of justice. In this episode, we will hear more from Mindy, her friend, and her family, about what she did on that Friday afternoon and over the weekend, and look closer at the evidence initially collected by the police. But first, just to remind you of the facts, it's Friday the 11th of May 2007 and Mindy travels the 100 miles from her home in Birmingham to Bury, the home of her lover, Sayer Ali, where he was living with his 11-week pregnant wife, 17-year-old Sana. Sana and Sayer were cousins and had an arranged marriage. Mindy says the purpose of the trip on that Friday was to tell Sana all about her husband's affair with her and to tell her it was over. The police case was that Mindy travelled to see Sana all pre-planned with the intention of killing her. Either way, Mindy did travel to see Sana and by late Friday afternoon, Sana had 43 wounds and later died of her injuries. Although initially the attending medics and police did consider Sana's death was suicide, this changed once at hospital and after the post-mortem. The result being, police changed their mind and treated Sana's death as murder arresting Mindy. At Mindy's trial, she was found guilty of killing Sana and in November 2007, she received a life sentence with a minimum tariff of 14 years. But is the evidence all as it seems or have crucial aspects been missed or ignored? Is Mindy a very dangerous killer who pre-planned a ferocious murder or is she an innocent victim, a miscarriage of justice? So let's go back to that Friday afternoon. The first thing she did after leaving the house when she was back in the car is call her friend Sheetal. The call was made at 21 minutes past two and lasted 17 minutes and 26 seconds. There is no dispute about this because it is confirmed by the mobile phone records. So what did Mindy say to Sheetal? Remember, the police and prosecution case is that she had literally just brutally stabbed Sana 43 times. Mindy was very calm and not at all angry. She appeared to be in control. Mindy, I remember, had said that the wife let her in via the back door. Mindy was surprised at how young the wife was, an innocent, almost childlike, I guess. Mindy had said that the wife spoke little English, and therefore their conversation was quite difficult. Mindy told her that I am the other person. Did you know about me? The wife replied, Yeah, I think I know something about you. Does Sahir say he loves you? And I remember Mindy saying, yes. Mindy asked the same question of the wife, who replied, he said it will come in time. The wife then showed to Mindy a cute type object, which I wasn't sure what it was. I got the impression it was something that you either buy one or another or exchange. Mindy had told the wife that she'd given the object to Sayer. Mindy has also mentioned that the wife had shown to Mindy her arms, which had marks of some description on. The wife said that she'd inflicted the marks herself with her bangles and that after doing it she felt better about things. Mindy told her that she shouldn't do these types of things to herself. Mindy had also said that whilst in the house, 
the wife's phone had rang and the wife showed Mindy the phone and said, my mum's ringing, I will ring her back later. Mindy said that towards the end of their meeting, the wife became really teary and upset. She hadn't displayed these emotions initially and that Mindy in a sort of way tried to comfort her by telling her to ring her mum after that she'd left. Mindy had also mentioned that she discussed with the wife as to whether to inform Sayer of their meeting and left it with the wife to make the decision. After this conversation, Mindy told me that she was driving back to Birmingham. So this is the account from Mindy's friend Sheetal, who she called straight after leaving the house. Police spoke to her whilst Mindy was in police custody and her account has not changed at all. She said the same in court. Her account is accepted by all parties as being correct and accurate. So let me pose two theories at this point for you to consider. If the police are correct, then Mindy had not only carefully planned the murder of Sana, she also carefully planned to call her friend immediately after leaving the house, so as to give the same cover story she is stuck to throughout, and very significantly was able to remain calm and normal, having just stabbed her lover's wife 43 times, including stabbing her in the abdomen, intending to kill her unborn child. Or... The other theory is Mindy is telling the truth, which explains her calm demeanour that when she left the house, as she says, Sana was very much alive, albeit upset, and that what she told Sheetal is exactly what happened. So did Mindy speak to Sheetal again? About two hours later, I received a call again from Mindy, and it was like, oh my God, oh my God. Sayer's called, she stabbed herself, she stabbed herself. I was so shocked and said, are you sure? I couldn't believe she'd done this. I remember I described the wife as being quite dumb for doing this sort of stuff to herself. But then I discussed with Mindy why she had done this and it it was for attention, I guess. I told Mindy that she needed to speak to Sayer and end the call. And they spoke again later. I then received several calls from Mindy the calls were really short bits of the conversation from what I can remember were that the paramedics were attempting to resuscitate the wife and at one point they told me that there was no pulse and that she'd stopped breathing I got the impression that Mindy was shocked she didn't appear to understand the seriousness of what was going on she constantly wanted reassurance from me that the wife would survive I really tried to be supportive but I didn't know what to say myself but I realised from the details that she gave me regarding the situation, it didn't look hopeful for the wife. I'd probably estimate that about an hour or so after the call, the wife having stabbed herself, I received calls from from Mindy. Mindy had said, she's dead, she's dead, I can't believe it. Mindy was obviously upset. She was crying, she was speaking incoherently. I told her that you have to pull over on the motorway but she said that she was stuck in standing traffic. I really got the impression that Mindy felt guilty for confronting the wife and and felt responsible in the way for what had happened to her. And the next day they met up. On the Saturday morning, I received a call from Mindy. Mindy was in disbelief as to what had happened. She'd expressed her concerns about Sayir and the fact that she hadn't really spoken to him apart from receiving the information about his wife and her condition. She asked me what she should do. I wasn't sure who she had told of her involvement in the matter. Later I did, I did tell her, you have to go to the police. 
I met up with Mindy on Saturday afternoon. She told me that she'd spoken to her mother and her lawyer friend called Vic. At this point, I was still under the impression that it was suicide. It was only when I spoke to my brother, though, that I realised it was far serious than I first thought. So what did Sheetal think? At no point did she disclose to me that she'd done anything other than talk to the wife and her about Saya's relationship. We also discussed the fact she believed it would be evident that she'd been in the house that day. She had informed me that she touched items inside the house and that possibly her fingerprints would be found. She did say that she'd closed a window in, in the house for the wife because something about her being cold or something like that. I thought that she considered these points because of the advice given by Vic, the solicitor. I was aware that Saya's wife was pregnant. Mindy just seemed to accept that fact. It was like his marriage, now she's pregnant. Could anything else get any worse? The only thing that she said to me that I found a bit odd was she had instructed me not to tell anyone about the matter until she herself had gone to the police. And then the next time I had contact with Mindy was on the Monday. She told me she was at home and waiting for the arrival of the police. This was the last occasion that I spoke to Mindy. Let's return now to Mindy's interview with the police, where she describes her contact with Sayer on that Friday afternoon having left the house. After I left, I spoke to Sayer a few times. The third time I spoke to him after I left, it was about a quarter to five. I answered the phone and he was really upset and he said, she stabbed herself, it's my fault, I'm such a rubbish husband, I, I don't know the exact words. His friend grabbed the phone and said, look Mindy, we don't know what's happened, his sisters have been trying to call her for the past hour and a half and she hasn't been answering the phone, so they went round to see her and then there was blood everywhere and she was on the floor and there was a knife there and just pray for her, just pray for her, then he put the phone down. Around an hour later, Mindy spoke to Sayir again. It was 5.50pm and he said to me, she's gone, I've killed my wife, it's all my fault. And I said, Sia, what happened, what happened? And he goes, she's dead, I've killed my wife, I've killed my wife. Then the phone is grabbed, the person says, you can't, Sayir, you can't say things like that. And then the phone just cut off. I texted him saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, if you need anything, I'm here for you. If you want to call me, if you want to talk, I'm here for you. I didn't hear anything, so I texted him saying, how are you doing, are you okay? And the only text I received back from him that night was one saying something like, I'm fucked, completely fucked. Mindy did not hear from Sayer again that Friday night. I didn't hear from him again until the Saturday and he texted me saying, they're treating it as a murder and then I text back saying something like, what, how come, or why, or something, and... Then he texted back saying, they're treating it as a murder, the police have sealed off the house, they're not releasing the body for a few days, my life is over, I'm completely finished or something like that. On the Sunday about 12 o'clock I answered the phone and it was Sayer's friend. He said, Mindy, Sayer's going to the police, he's going to tell them about you and need you to tell them. Not to keep it as brief as possible, be really discreet, don't tell them that the family know just don't don't go into too much detail I had it on loudspeaker and my mum and a friend were with me so we have Mindy's account of what happened that Friday afternoon and evening we've also heard from her friend Sheetal 
But what did she tell her parents after returning home that Friday evening, having made the long trip back to Birmingham from seeing Sana in Bury? Her mum, Suki, tells me about the moment she returned home. Uh, I was in the kitchen and um, she came home and she, she rushed in to see me. She went, Mum, she says, I've been to see Sana. And I was like, you what? She went, yeah, I've been to see Sana, she says. And now on the way back, when I was driving home, um, Saya's just told me that she's tried to commit suicide. And obviously, you know, she was a bit alarmed, the fact that obviously she's been there, she's been to see her, and now this has happened. So, and then obviously I asked her what happened, you know, and then she talked to me and she said, look, I I went in, I I went towards the house, I knocked on the door, and she, um, first she says to Asana, and then she pointed to go the other way, so she let her in through the back way. Um, As she walked in, um, she said to her, are you Miriam? Um, Mindy said yes, obviously, to keep it simple. Um, she let her in. Um, she went towards the door, like, to reach for the window. So Mindy went, she said, oh, I'll do that, I'll do that. So she went up there, closed the window for her. She asked Mindy if she wanted a drink. Mindy took her shoes off. Mindy says, no, no, I'm, you know, I'm all right. They went in and they had a chat. She started saying about the relationship that she had um, with Saya. And then... Um, she sat there with her and obviously as she started talking, um, Sana showed her her arms and um, obviously there were, there were like uh, wounds on there, like uh, marks on her wrists. And Mindy says, do you do that? And she goes, yes. And she, Mindy says, you shouldn't do that to yourself. She goes, but it makes me feel good. And then Sana says to her, will you, will you come upstairs with me? And Mindy said, okay. So she went upstairs, she, she uh, pulled out a card from one of the drawers and she said to uh, Mindy, did you give Saya this? And she went, yes, I did. And while Mindy was there, obviously the phone rang as well and it was her mum, Sana's mum. She didn't answer it at the time. Um, after then, obviously, Mindy came down, Sana let her out and the last thing Mindy says to her, make sure you ring your mum. And Sana let her out. So in summary, within days of the murder, Mindy has provided her full account to the police about the visit to see Sana and also her communication with Sheetal and Sayer on the Friday evening. Mindy's mum, Suki, provided police with her account of what Mindy said when she came home immediately after visiting Sana. Suki's account being provided after Mindy was in police custody at a time when they were not in contact. Let us now look at the aspect which I believe is central to this case and it relates to the initial views held by the medics and the police and crucially what the 999 call handler was told and that being that Sana's death was a suicide. She had cut and stabbed herself. But hours later, after a post-mortem, her death is ruled a homicide so the police launch a murder investigation. Over the forthcoming episodes, we will hear more about why and how This change from suicide to murder. But for now, if murder, then who are the potential suspects? The police considered there were three. Mindy, Sayer, Sana's husband, and one other person, Sayer's brother. So the police arrested all three and they were taken in for questioning. Mindy's interviewed more than ten times over her four days in police custody. Her account is pulled apart as the police start to build up their own theory about what they believe happened on that Friday afternoon. And who better to give me an insight into the police investigation than the police officer that was in charge of the case. 
It is always important in any reinvestigation to speak to the police officers that were involved in the case, and ideally with the officer that was in charge, but it can be very hard sometimes, especially when you're looking at a case which may result in a critical examination of their work. Lucky though, because of my policing background and the fairness in which I will always treat people, and crucially that the officer knows me, means that she's agreed to speak to me. So I'm setting off on a four-hour car journey to Manchester to interview retired Detective Chief Superintendent Jane Antrobus, who led the investigation, which was called Operation Primrose. So, Jane, here we are in Manchester. This is your not only your hometown, but of course the town that you policed for many, many years. How long were you in Greater Manchester Police for? 30 years. 30 years, so yeah. full term of service. Yes. So your role, just for people listening, just tell me what that means. So your role as a senior investigating officer, what does that mean happens when a major incident or a critical incident occurs? Well, basically, I'm in charge of the investigation. So I'm in charge of deploying resources, of uh, working out all the strategies and uh, the direction of the investigation and making sure that the right tasks are prioritised and done within a time frame. You know that area much, much better than me. The area that Sana was living in, that family environment, what's it like as far as a community? Well, it's a, a very nice area, Bramble's Home at Bury, um, a suburb of Greater Manchester, a very nice uh, area, nice street, uh, affluential community and a very large family home in its own grounds. Yeah, it's a very large detached house and it she was. was living there. She home. was living with her husband, she was living with um, his brother Hassan and his mother and father who at the time of the murder were abroad and Hassan was out shopping. What do we know about Sana as a person? Well, we know that she's 17 years old, that she's a devout Muslim, that she's the first cousin of her husband, Saya Ali, and that she was um, married to him um, a few months prior in an arranged marriage and she'd been betrothed to him since the age of nine. Right, okay. So, uh, and we also know that Saya was in a relationship with at least one woman, which was Mindy. We do know that and is also um, believed to have been a sort of a playboy lifestyle, not sort of a Muslim um, uh, lifestyle where he's committed to his wife. Uh, he had uh, lots of girlfriends and was out on the town at all hours and that did not suit his new wife because she felt that he should be committed to her and uh, that they should have a happy home life together and it doesn't appear that that was the case. And speaking to family relatives did in fact paint the picture that she was not happy in that marriage and neither was he. Um, and it was only when she became pregnant that he seemed to uh, switch off from the lifestyle that he'd started um, going out to nightclubs, coming in at all hours, not giving respect to his wife and he then seemed to be set that he was going to be committed to her, tied down to her and the new child. And that, although he might have said that, he was still having an affair with Mindy at that period of time, wasn't he? That was, that had been going on for quite a while. Yes, a number of years he met her in a nightclub. Uh, Mindy thought that he would leave his wife for her 
and in fact that's what he told her he would do but everything changed when Sana fell pregnant so it was at that point that um, things became strained between Mindy and Saia even though they had had this um, they had had a um, arrangement made under the Muslim faith called a mutter which means that um, an elder in that community would conduct a ceremony between the two of them and it's, it, it is actually a temporary marriage which under the eyes of Allah allows him to conduct his relationship with Mindy. And crucially Sana didn't know about that did she? Sana did not know about the mutter being in place and she, although she had a suspicions about her husband's uh, fidelity to her uh, I don't think anything was ever proven, but she had the grumblings of being not happy and worrying about what he was up to. We will hear a lot more from Jane Antrobus and the police investigation in due course, but for now, let's consider more evidence surrounding the events on the day as they unfolded. The first people on the scene were Sana's sisters-in-law, Yasmin, and then Zaira, followed by an ambulance crew. The first 999 call was made by Yasmin at 7 minutes past 4. Just before this, Yasmin called her sister, Zaira, to tell her what she had found. So we have two emergency calls and what they said is significant. Yasmin calls at seven minutes past four and says, I think my sister-in-law has stabbed herself. And then Zaira calls and says, just found sister-in-law killing herself, killed herself. The ambulance control then contacts the police requesting that they also attend. First on the scene, was ambulance officer Mr Nuttall. About 4pm I was on duty with my colleague at Berry Ambulance Station when an emergency call came in with information that a female stabbed herself. As we arrived at the address in Berry, we saw at least two, possibly three Asian females by the door and they were all upset and in a panic state. We were shown upstairs and we went into the room directly opposite as you get to the top of the stairs. I entered the room first. It was a large bedroom uh, with a double bed facing the door, the headboard side up against the wall, uh, furthest away from the door. The door opens inwards, uh, hinged on the left, and it was open at approximately 90 degrees angle. And about two feet away, there was a young Asian female lying on the carpet face up. Her legs were pointing uh, in the direction of the bottom of the bed and her head was about four feet from the wall with the door on. She was about three foot from the left side wall. 
How did Sana appear to the ambulance crew? I checked her airway, which was clear. Checked for breathing, uh, of, of which there was no sign. Checked for a pulse, of which there was no sign. Uh, we then started to use the defibrillator on her chest, and there was no cardiac rhythm. We were then joined by another ambulance crew. We then decided that she needed to go to hospital. We put her on a chair and carried her to the ambulance and she went to hospital. I remember seeing in the bedroom um, a mobile phone on the bed, which rang several times during my time there. There was a handbag on the right side as you entered the bedroom near the foot of the bed. For a large room, it looked quite bare. Right from arrival at the scene, the ambulance crew will be looking for any evidence or items that will help them to assess the cause of the injuries. There was a large kitchen knife with an 8 to 10 inch blade which tapers at the end on the floor in between the female and the left side wall. It was um, parallel with her head and I I saw blood on it. The handle was pointing towards the bed and the, the point was pointing towards the wall. The injuries I noticed consisted of several cuts on both her wrists and on her chest. There was a straight closed wound on the left side. This wound was not bleeding on my arrival, but a small amount came out whilst doing chest compressions. There was a wound on her abdomen, which looked smaller than the one on her chest. Uh, This was also not bleeding. And her limbs uh, were, were loose and floppy and her body was warm. Retired Detective Chief Superintendent Jane Antrobus takes me through the case from the moment the police became involved. So what we have is we have uh, police attend the scene, reports of a suicide, Sana is taken to hospital, she dies at hospital. It's now part of the police investigation to build the facts, build the information, the intelligence, everything together to find out what has happened. So your crime scene is telling you... Uh, It was initially treated as a suicide and divisional um, officers were deployed. The reason that there was probably the greater belief that this was suicide was because of the phone calls that also came from the sister-in-laws, which was that they phoned the ambulance, two separate sister-in-laws, and both said she's cut herself again, uh, to words to that effect. Yes. And so until we get to the pathology, the crime scene is telling you This looks like a suicide. Yes. So what did the crime scene look like? I have asked criminal solicitor David Wells to read the case files and to present the police and prosecution evidence. David tells me how Sana was found in her bedroom. Sana was found lying face up on her bedroom floor behind the bedroom door. She was fully clothed, covered in a lot of blood, and beside her on the floor to her right-hand side was a knife. In her right hand, she had some of her own hair. There was more blood and fluid on the floor and even more of her own hair. When the paramedics arrived, they found Sana was systolic, no heartbeat. However, she was still warm, no rigor mortis had set in, and there was no sign of hypostasis, settling of blood. This becomes important later when considering two things, the possible timing of the murder and the time difference between Mindy leaving and Sana being found. So Sana is taken to hospital arriving at 4.44pm and advanced resuscitation measures commenced. This is unsuccessful and she's declared dead at 5.30pm. 
post-mortem examination is carried out the next day on the Saturday. The post-mortem was carried out by Dr Lum, pathologist at the Royal Oldham Hospital. The injuries to Sana were numerous. To her neck, she had two stab wounds, not deep, three and four centimetres respectively, and two clean-cut incision injuries. To her left arm, she had one stab wound, again not deep, 2.5 centimetres in length, a further eight clean-cut incision injuries. To her left hand, she had 11 clean-cut incision injuries, and to her right arm, she had a further single incision injury. To her right hand, she had 14 clean-cut incision injuries. To her chest, she had stab wounds, the main one being a 14-centimetre deep wound penetrating the left lung and pulmonary artery. And there was also a stab wound penetrating the abdominal cavity, cutting through the main vein in the abdomen that was about 19 centimetres deep. In all, she had about 43 injuries. The cause of death was as a result of stab wounds to the chest and abdomen, damaging major blood vessels resulting in hemorrhage. And what were Dr Lum's conclusions regarding the injuries and how they could have been caused? Dr Lum stated that he believed the hand incision wounds were typical of defence injuries, like grabbing a knife. He also stated that the wrist and forearm injuries could also represent fending off a knife. His report stated that he did consider the possibility that two of the injuries, namely the left forearm just below the wrist and the right forearm just below the wrist, could have been self-inflicted. And whilst they are in a location that is readily accessible to the deceased herself, he didn't believe that these injuries were self-inflicted. He further said in relation to these injuries that he could not exclude the possibility that they were self-inflicted by one or more assailants in an attempt to mimic self-inflicted injuries. Furthermore, he also stated that death may not have been immediate and there could have been a period of time following the infliction of the fatal injuries to the chest and abdomen and Sana's collapse during which she would have been capable of purposeful movement. Let us pause for a moment to consider purposeful movement. So why did Sana not move out of the bedroom, scream or get her mobile phone which was on the bed just feet away from her. And how come Mindy has no blood on her at all or any injuries from Sana defending herself? That is it for episode two. Coming up next week, we hear about the moment Mindy is arrested. Oh, God. It was... um. It was then afterwards, then when she put herself forward, they come. There was loads of them. And then they asked, have you got a knife? I said, yes, yeah. I said, help yourselves, look, you know, whatever you want to look at, have, have a look. And um, then the people came in the white suits. Paul, Mindy's dad, explains the defence strategy at trial. At the trial... We were running, it was to, to prove Mindy was innocent, we were running that um, against a third party, another third party who committed the crime. Um, and with, with the, the technical phone messages, which was quite very complicated because there was messages on the phone that were open. And after, after Mindy had left, so the timing was 
and crucial on them. I asked the police officer in charge of the investigation about ownership of the knife. But it could have been Sana's. In other words, Sana could have brought that into house her own and nobody else seen the knife. She could have kept that knife in That's her own bedroom. That's a possibility. But there is lots of blood on that knife and hair, but there are no fingerprints or anything on that knife in relation to Mindy. No. And how does she explain the fact that Mindy left no fingerprints on the murder weapon, nor had any blood at all on her clothes that she wore that day? I think she wore gloves and I think she wore um, a suit similar to what uh, police officers and booties like a police officer would wear when they're going to crime scene. You've just heard episode two of What If It's Not Murder. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your true crime friends to listen and subscribe to our channel. If you have any thoughts or just want to get in touch, then you can do so via our Twitter page at The Detective FM or go to our website www.the-detective.co.uk. Thank you for listening. This episode was written, produced and recorded by Mark Williams Thomas. Edited by Martin Kays and the music by Dylan E. Pager. The Detective is an original true crime podcast brought to you by Acast.